Hey there, Sound of Groove Podcast is back. Yes, indeed it is. It's, uh, what are we at here, huh? Uh, the third episode, that's it, for 2017. Coming a little late, of course, because we're in November. But I'm going to try to cram all these in. I know I've done that in the past, let it sort of uh, go too late. But here we are with the third episode of 2017. And I would deliver three more after this if I get some uh, chance to. Well, there'll be at least one more after this one, I can tell you that. Hopefully before the end of next month, being December. But we're back after a couple months off here. And it's to tackle a whole, whole new theme. It's got two parts to it. Like sometimes I go with one theme having one episode and other times I do two. And in this case, we're going double. And it's the part one, obviously, right here that you're listening to. Now, uh, this is uh, here the theme I'm going with this time are tracks or songs if you will from artists that are critically maligned the ones that i found that are you know rather well known i'm not taking just obscure ones who are terrible or something and everybody hates them because they're no good and they have a record deal like william hung or something it's like come on i mean there are obvious times when there was somebody who's not really of a high caliber and the critics don't like it or whatever but we're talking about artists bands singers things like that that are um well liked you know popular have sold a huge amount of units like they say in the industry about uh, being a big uh, commercial artist. But the critics never really totally warm to, were sometimes even harsh toward. Uh, these aren't particularly artists that I hate on, although I have to say most of the people on this list are not my cup of tea, and I don't really have a huge collection of their songs. So that's what kind of makes it interesting. And uh, I'm picking songs that I do like from those particularly bashed artists that don't get a, you know, a good rap whether that's fair or not. I mean, sometimes people say, hey, you know, they're popular. Obviously, a lot of people love them. But, I mean, would you say they're a Nickelback? You know, because they are pretty hated. And, no, uh, just a spoiler alert here, there is no Nickelback. I didn't pick a song of theirs. Because, really, I don't think there's a song of theirs I like. I don't even think there's a song of theirs that's respectable enough, in my mind, that I would put it here. I mean, maybe that was just really harsh. But I don't like them. Not many people do. But, obviously, a lot of people do because they've sold a ginormous amount of records. So... But the public at large doesn't always have the greatest taste, do they? And, I mean, in some cases with these artists, that is evident. However, there are shining beacons of light inside the, amidst the, you know, mediocrity for some of these people, I would say. Now, here's an artist that, you know, sometimes I do like his melodicism, his ability as a tunesmith. And he often was compared to, like, kind of a rock-pop version of Irving Berlin or some kind of populist composer from back in the day. Sometimes they compare him to Elton John because his piano was his main instrument. He's a Long Islander. He's an American, not f you know from overseas, but sort of uh, was at the forefront of making the piano kind of a cool instrument again. Not in the sense of a rock and roller like Jerry Lee Lewis or Little Richard, although he did pound away the keys like that, but, but more of a song and dance kind of guy. You know what I mean? Like one of those old school Tin Pan Alley composers. And that man I'm talking about, I'll finally get to it, his name is Billy Joel. And Billy Joel is hugely successful. I mean, one of the highest-selling rock artists, if you want to call him that. At times, he's veered between rock and sort of more uh, Broadway type of uh, musical, stage musical pop. But that didn't stop the critics from really not appreciating him too much. I mean, some people say, hey, i got to stand up for him. You know, he's the guy. He deserves a little more respect. Other people say, eh, no. And he's kind of sort of like a lightweight Paul McCartney. And they didn't like Paul McCartney in the 70s either, I should add. Billy Joel, underneath all that kind of music that could tend to be a little sappy, you know, like Just the Way You Are, which is not the song I'm going to play, uh, he had a bit of a, you know, kind of a edgy streak, and he always at times tried to prove he could be edgy, and sometimes it won people over, but a lot of times the critics were still a little bit cold to his, you know, style. They found him a bit loungy, a bit of a Vegasy type of act, even though he was obviously an East Coast guy, 
And he had a bit of a temper underneath it, you know what I mean? And he sometimes would rip up reviews of him, of bad reviews of his music on stage and say, hey, what do they know? They're just a bunch of dorks and they're basically, you know, he basically called it out. And he just made a lot of money, so a glass laugh went to him. Anyway, this is a track from his uh, 1976 album, Turnstiles. Uh, this came a couple years after an album called Street Life Serenade that didn't really follow up on the big success that was 1973's Piano Man. And it wasn't until the next year's The Stranger that he really sort of hit the multi-platinum gigantic success that would follow him through to the 80s. Uh, the track I'm going to play from Turnstiles is called New York State of Mind. And it's become one of those standards because it's a bit jazzy at times. Uh, it's one of those sort of uh, signature songs in Billy Joel's canon, and there are quite a few of them, but one that, you know, doesn't divide critics as much as others, you know, like Piano Man sometimes seen as a little bit of sentimentalism, if that's a word, more sentimentality and kind of uh, maudlin, and Just the Way You Are is seen as very, you know, sappy and corny. A lot of his songs are get that label, and even when he tried to do oldies in the 80s, people said it was like a jukebox, you know, sort of a karaoke thing. The guy just couldn't catch a damn break. Anyhow, uh, I don't think it really bothered him too much, but he was always striving for that respect and that uh, acknowledgement, and didn't always get it. But I'm going to play it right now. New York State of Mind by Billy Joel here on the Sound of Groove podcast from 
down to reality And it's fine with me Cause I've let it slide I Don't care if it's Chinatown Or Rotten Riverside I don't have any reason Left them all behind I'm in a New York state of mind There was New York State of Mind by Billy Joel. And one of those tracks that's adopted by the particular state or city that is uh, referenced in it. And uh, that one, you know, surely uh, became one of his sort of uh, signature tracks, as I said, and performed and covered and uh, widely played all over the place. Not a hit necessarily when it came out. Um, it got some attention and was more probably the most widely appreciated track off of that album, Turnstiles, which was considered an improvement over Street Life Serenade and Piano Man, for that example, for that matter which uh, was carried to, I think, gold record status or something like that, based on the title track, which was a big hit. And Billy Joel didn't really hit that immediate sensational success. Uh, it took about four albums in, like I said, with The Stranger, and then even bigger with 52nd Street, before he was established as a huge name. But the critics still weren't all on his side. They sometimes found him to be schmaltzy, kind of like, you know, uh, kind of supper club entertainer. Some of his tracks were considered a little bit... Uh, of the Lawrence Welk crowd variety, and really, though, you can hear on that tune, he has a great way with the piano, obviously, uh, in terms of his uh, melodicism and everything. It's Elton John-esque in that sense, although a little bit more American East Coast, grounded in sort of like a jazzy, uh, uh, like sort of light jazz, R&B-type feel to it. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the time there's cheesy sax solos and electric pianos and kind of the stuff that's hallmarks of soft rock, which was sort of burgeoning in the 70s with people easy listening and hit with a lot of people but derided by critics left right and center who said it was you know lacked the gravitas it lacked the artistic appeal of the best music of the time whether it be pop top 40 stuff even then they, they compared it unfavorably even to some of that but nonetheless billy joel persevered and he did do some things that are you know the critics came to respect him for when he tried to do more serious work in the 80s um and they came around, he did an album called The Nile and Curtain, which, you know, while ambitious and doesn't quite hit the mark to me fully, it did win him a little more respect that he wasn't just, you know, some kind of uh, guy to write wedding songs or whatever, like Just the Way You Are, and She's Always a Woman to Me, and uh, things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, he uh, then turned toward oldies on the album An Innocent Man to show that he had, you know, 60s inspirations and everything, that he was still a child of the 50s in the rock and roll scene. Anyway... Billy Joel, uh, he's, uh, despite what everyone said about him, had quite a successful run, that's for sure. And up until the 90s, he was a platinum-selling uh, major league artist. But let's move on to another particular platinum major league artist at one point, although, you know, sort of um, in the 70s, you could say he was as big as 
Billy Joel at one point, and he always, he tried even harder to be considered a serious artist. This is Neil Diamond we're talking about. Anyway, from that same East Coast New York City Jewish background and probably inspired by the musicals and the kind of Broadway sort of like glitz and glamour uh, aspect of New York, it's a little different than other cities and locales. Neil uh, showed up at first kind of just sort of as a groovy, another groovy artist, a singer-songwriter that had some hits that he provided the monkeys, like A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, and of course I'm a Believer, which he had his own recording of. He was on a label called Bang Records, run by a guy who uh, was a music impresario that might have had some mob ties named Burt Burns. And he, um, he at first seemed, you know, inoffensive enough. He wrote some pretty catchy tunes, and at first the critics kind of liked him, and, you know, many people look back on the late 60s of Neil Diamond as his best era. You know, what he wrote was mostly pop, but it was three-chord catchy stuff like Cherry Cherry and uh, Kentucky Woman, Thank the Lord for the Nighttime. There were songs that had a little bit of a, of a you know, bottom end to it. They could be muddy at times, a little gr gritty, soulful even. And then as the 60s went on into the 70s, he became more interested in kind of doing these sort of like sing-along type pop things. And at times he would flex his muscles as a serious singer-songwriter, you know, I Am I Said and uh, Song Sung Blue. But the critics still thought all these were just corny and that he was, you know, a banal songwriter no matter how hard he tried, you know, Cracklin' Rosie. These were just top 40 AM radio hits in, in a sense, which wasn't highly respected then. You know, at one point, being a top 40 artist was the thing to be in the in the contemporary music world. But by the late 60s, early 70s, if you weren't an album-oriented artist who could put out serious works from top to bottom, you weren't taken seriously. And Neil Young had... Neil Diamond, sorry. <laughs> unlike Neil Young, had a lot of hits, but his albums were never really sort of uh, hugely popular with the critics, even though they sold well. And uh, this is a track from his early days that shows what kind of songwriter he was and the kind of really deep, meaningful songs he could write even when he was doing pop, which is interesting because later on he was just a little too ambitious, like America and all that stuff, like Heartlight. It was all kind of very much the easy listening group that I said that Billy Joel got lumped into. So I'm going to play this track from 1967 called Solitary Man. You know, it does have sort of a monkey sound to it, but there's a little bit of a dark undercurrent. It's a really, it's sort of like a, a, it's a brooding type of song. It's sort of a sad kind of theme to it, but it's delivered with a lot of, you know, passion and sort of like, it, it sounds like it's real soundtrack type music. And uh, it's really a great example of what Neil Diamond's strengths are or were. And of course, you know, I'm not going to play the ones that aren't because, you know, the, the songs of his that are not my type of uh, music, cup of tea, are always a little too sentimental, sing-songy, you know. Sweet Caroline is probably his most famous track, and I don't like it, you know, not just because it's sung at Boston Red Sox games either. <laughs> but anyway... Go back to 1967 with a young Neil Diamond doing Solitary Man on the Santa Group podcast. The Linda was mine till the time that I found her Holding Jim, loving him Then Sue came along, loved me strong, that's what I thought me and Sue But that too Don't know that I will But until I can find me A girl that'll stay Won't play games behind me And I'll be what I am A solitary man Solitary man I've had a day here being well 
time pain Paper rain I know it's been done Having one girl who loves you Right or wrong We go strong There was a rather peppy, solitary man. A uh, nice little track from 1957 by Neil Diamond, a critically maligned artist that I do like. On this particular podcast theme in 2017, the Sound of Groove podcast, hosted, I should add, that I didn't say earlier, exclusively, well not exclusively, but primarily, by not the pub, public broadcaster.com, a wonderful site of culture, politics, sports, talk, mu- you know, music, movies, we get all that stuff in there. Uh, you should check it out for not just this podcast, but all the other great stuff that comes along with it. I suggest you surf the site and see what uh, tickles your fancy, as they say. Does anyone say that anymore? I don't know, but that's what I just did. Anyhow, huh. so this uh, particular episode, yeah, I don't even know. I gave it a theme. Let's just go with the name of uh, artists that get trashed but have some good songs. I don't know. We'll see. You'll see what the name is when it comes out. Huh? I just sort of come up with these things after the fact, after I uh, lay it down. So anyway, there was Neil Diamond, who always strove to be taken as seriously as guys. Like he thought, he, he thought though, you know, he may have a chip on his shoulder. He really thought he was, like, on the level of a guy like Bob Dylan. And he's even dragged into The Last Waltz, the band's uh, documentary f- uh, film, but their final concert performance in 1976. Comes on wearing um, tinted glasses indoors, looking like a kind of a... Vegas Entertainer, or as I saw him one time referred to, Jewish Elvis <laughs> in a uh, VH1 special. I think it was Greg Proops was a comedian who called him that. Remember that guy who's on his anyway? Ah, well, whatever. You don't. You might not, but <laughs> that was a great apt comparison. Plus, his huge collars. He had these huge collars. It was a style in the 70s, but anyway, he came out and did a song called Dry Your Eyes, and it was, you know, kind of like bored everybody to tears. <laughs> and after he came off and said to Dylan something like, ah, oh, go ahead and top that, and beat that or something and bob said something like oh well uh what do you want me to go do go out there and fall asleep or something to that extent he sort of just gave a backhanded insult right back toward neil diamond and neil was in that thing because his recent album at that time which was sort of a concept album with tin pan alley and the the old days of being a brill building singer songwriter it was called beautiful noise it was produced or co-produced or something like that by Robbie Robertson, who, of course, was the guitarist in the band. So, you know, he got to be pals with uh, Neil Diamond and said, hey, why don't you come perform? And he really stood, stood out. A lot of people are not fans of Neil Diamond being involved in a huge rock elite group like he was there. But let's uh, enough about that guy, eh? Enough about Neil Diamond and his showy, Vegasy music and his act that I'm not hugely a fan of. But I like that song, and I like his early stuff. Almost everything he did in his first few years I'm a fan of, and almost everything he did in the 70s and 80s I could do without. So, sorry, Neil. You know, he put stones. Get all serious. Stones would play inside her head. Ah, and be all like, sing like that. 
Trey Parker uh, from South Park does really good Neil Diamond-esque vocals in a lot of his parody songs, actually. There's something about Neil Diamond's self-serious way of singing that really kind of captures captured well when you do a song in sort of a ham-fisted, karaoke type of way. You know, that's the other thing. It's like his music can be lumped into that sort of quasi-karaoke style that uh, Billy Joel would fall into, I guess. Sorry, guys. Uh, that's part of my issue with them as artists anyway. But I'm going to move on to a group that uh, never really took themselves too seriously. It was very much in the pop sort of group, but kind of looked like, you know, a dinner, supper club tour version of something a little more s substantial. I'm talking about the group ABBA. Hugely popular, but mostly in Europe in the 70s. In the UK, they were, you know, <laughs> sold almost as much as the Beatles at one point, and some people were trying to call them the 70s version of that, but which was silly anyway. But they were unique in that they were uh, two males and two females in the group. They were, you know, two married couples. Um, you had Benny and Bjorn and Anna and Frida and everybody, you know, they sort of had this cult worship fan uh, group that's uh, sprung up and it hasn't gone away. It's persisted. And that's been helped by the fact their music was featured prominently in a movie in the 90s called Muriel's Wedding. And then it got its own stage production slash musical film called Mamma Mia. So ABBA, their music persists and is hugely popular and it sold a lot of records in the 70s and so it had a revival in the 90s. I never really got it. Not a huge fan. I mean, like, sometimes I'm willing to, you know, bend my rules of being a snob to listen to things like Elton John that he did, which could be considered a little bit commercial. But, like, everything they did that was inspired by older music that, you know, sort of took off from that, uh, ABBA, that is, everyone said, well, that Benny, Benny Bjorn was, like, the Swedish, because that's where they're from, Sweden, by the way, uh, the Swedish Lennon McCartney. And I just thought, just, what a stupid... <laughs> what a stupid insult to Lennon McCartney as one of the greatest songwriting duos of all time. Like, Benny and Bjorn on their level? What the hell are you talking about? Dancing Queen? Are you, are you comparing that to the Hey Jude or something? I I don't know. To each his own. I guess one man's tr uh, junk is another's treasure or whatever. But one undeniable fact is that lots of people love ABBA. I'm not one of them, but there are some songs there that don't cheese me off, that don't annoy me or don't I don't find to be vapid. Or banal, or whatever word you want to use to describe, you know, sort of the cardboard cutout type music they do, like pop pastiches that aren't really all that inventive or original. Uh, Dancing Queen's not bad. It's a little over the top. It's kind of like disco meets uh, European uh, <laughs> European theater, theatrical music. Um, but uh, this track, Knowing Me, Knowing You, is not bad. You know that Anna and Frida had this charm to them, I and. Mean, it helped that they were good-looking. I think a lot of the fact that Apple was so big is because the men would be like, oh, i got to go see them play, and then the women would go, oh, I want to you know, hear the music because the women like the music more, and the men just like probably looking at Anna and Frida, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that certainly did not kill their appeal, that they had two very good-looking women in the group singing, uh, you know, sometimes lustily, these these uh, popular tunes. You know, it was always kind of snobby, upper-crust uh European pop music, and uh, people, some people love that. I mean, Waterloo, everyone loves that. Oh, it's sort of like a 50s revival, Grease-style type rocker. I mean, it sounds like Sha-na-na. It couldn't be further from that. It sounds like sort of like a children's TV show version of what rock and roll sounds like. You, you, it doesn't stand up next to something like Jerry Lee Lewis or Little Richard or whatever. It's trying to sound like them, but it's just, like, cheesy. I don't know how to explain it, but it doesn't have the same... It sounds like people trying to impersonate rock and roll music, not emulate it. I don't know. But anyway, this song's not bad. It's called Knowing Me, Knowing You, as I said, and it was uh, 1977 from the studio album Arrival. And I should also say, I got it wrong. It says Frida is Anna Fried, and Agnetha was the other. Uh, I got the names wrong. But, you know, see, that shows you how much I don't even really care about ABBA or care for ABBA. But here we go. Let's play from 1977. 
one of their more uh, melancholy hits, uh, Knowing Me, Knowing You. It's got a bit of a sort of, uh, you know, uh, kitschiness to it, but I, I enjoy it. So let's take a listen to it here on the Sound of Group Podcast. somewhat uh, I think it's a little more tougher edged for Abba style song Knowing Me Knowing You kind of more a bittersweet song of breakup that uh, they did pulled off fairly well in that one like there's a handful of Abba tracks that I can respect and that's one of them uh, SOS is okay it's a little you know lightweight but it's not too bad Dancing Queen is their magnum opus I guess you could say it's really not saying much when these are your best tracks to me anyway but they had an appeal I mean it's pop music it's pop music at its a little more simplistic and you know like I've criticized Billy Joel and Neil Diamond for that they're a little more serious in the songwriting vein it's harder to take Benny and Bjorn's music as seriously but I'm sure if someone listening to this right now heard this who was an ABBA fan they'd be aghast at what I'm saying you know but it's like if you go <laughs> there are some pop acts that people make fun of that I pro- probably prefer to listen to boy bands and girl groups of variety of types and that I'm just not a huge fan of ABBA's sort of like 
I guess it doesn't happen, or I guess it doesn't help when they, you know, are obviously Swedish singing with their accents. I don't know. Bjorn Ulveus and uh, Benny Anderson wrote the songs for the majority of them, and the girls would sing them. And, uh, you know, it just uh, doesn't appeal to me. But though that song there, though, I can see they do have a way with a melody. But, you know, if you saw them, I just I just don't know how anyone could have taken them seriously. Obviously, they were just sort of there for Papa, like their outfits. They looked like some sort of, like, backup dancers. To, it was the 70s, though, but they looked like backup dancers to Elvis or something like that. It was all just sort of of its time, this up-with-people sort of ritzy look where people would wear the, you know, the tassels on the arms and the jumpsuits and whatever. Hey, it looked okay on, uh, you know, Agatha and uh, Frida, <laughs> but it was still outlandish. Anyway. That was the thing. There was this outlandishness that was big at the time, but in retrospect, eh, I don't know. But they really revived their popularity in the 90s, and their records started to sell very well again, and they're still cherished by many people. And that's fine to each their own, like I said. I just don't cherish it that much, but I will acknowledge they had something going in some of their tracks, and that's why I play that one. Let's talk about another artist who was pretty lightweight and not to be taken as a major artist with a ton to say, but because she was part of that singer-songwriter... Um, wave and you know saying about women's issues at times that was she was lumped in as a, one of those significant important artists though the critics disagreed and just like with ABBA being a huge pop phenomenon they disagreed that they were worthy of it and uh, they didn't see what the big for the most part most of the, the critics and the you know hardcore music fans didn't see what the fuss was about Carly Simon and uh, it's kind of a theme thing going here because uh, I'm going to play her husband after that I won't tell you who that was but they were married for a time and uh, he was also one of those people who got slagged, maybe a little more unfairly than the other artists I've mentioned here so far. But I'll go over the reasons why, and the, they, you know, he was, and the reasons why I sort of, sort of see why, and sort of don't really, you know, get the whole thing around him. But Carly Simon, I mean, she's got some interesting tunes. And the thing about it was, with Carol King becoming a huge success as a singer-songwriter, you know, with the singer part of it, after being, you know, behind the scenes mostly in the '60s. All of a sudden, there was this market for that type of thing. You know, Joni Mitchell hit the scene, Laura Nero. And uh, for the most part, not all of them were great vocalists. I mean, that had to be the thing. You had to have this feminine look and feminine sound to be be a singer, uh, to be a star singer, whether it be pop, country, R&B, whatever. You had to have some kind of pipes, too. And not all the time, but a lot of the time, you had to have a voice that uh, marketed some kind of appeal. But then all of a sudden, in the 70s, it was okay to have an average voice. And Carly Simon really did. Carole King did. Laura Nero had a better voice, but always went into her high falsetto register and sounded, like, shrieky at times. But, uh, you know, the critics were a little harsh on Carly. I don't know, <clears throat> because I think they saw her as not worthy of the attention and the commercial success she got compared to Joni Mitchell and those other names I mentioned. And, you know, Helen Reddy was another person that kind of got a little bit raked over the coals because these were popular female uh, solo artists at a time when that was sort of springing forth. That was There's a burgeoning amount of singer-songwriter women uh, you know, and Linda Ronstadt sang the songs of those people, and uh, she was fairly successful. But, you know, people could see why. She was an incredible singer, an incredible interpreter. But Carly Simon and some others, not so, you know, gifted in that regard. However, this song I'm going to play from her second album, uh, with the same title, Anticipation, is quite a good tune. I mean, a lot of the time Carly Simon's music didn't really have a lot of substance. I mean, nobody does it better. It's like, that's a cheesy, you know, t movie ballad and everything. It's well known, but, you know... Uh, previous to this, she'd had a top to hit with That's the Way I Always always Heard It Should Be from her first album. So this one followed it up at the end of 1971, and it was also quite a big hit. And this was before You're So Vain, which is, you know, again, her sort of, her trademark 
track, I would say. I mean, definitely. I mean, people have speculated for years what it was about because they said, oh, who's it about? It turned out it was Warren Beatty she was referring to. She finally spilled the beans, I think, recently. Anyway, uh, this track, Anticipation, got a bit more of a cultural boost from the fact that Heinz Ketchup used it in a series of its commercials a couple years after. You know, talking about, oh, the wait for when you get your ketchup to come out of the bottle. Remember how ketchup always used to come in that before the squeeze top thing? Anyway, I don't know. So, I, there was a great SNL parody of it, too, where they used it for the uh, mineral water. Great Lakes mineral water as it pours out as a goo from Bill Murray talking about it. Anyway, that's a different bit to look up. But nonetheless, let me get back on track here. It's a rather folky song, Anticipation, but it does have the sort of rock backing to it with some studio pros doing a real bang-up job helping Carly along here. And, uh, you know, when I hear this, I think Joni Mitchell must have been listening a little harder and said, oh, i got to incorporate more of a fuller sound because she was pretty much spare, primitive, just playing instruments on her own. Anyway, let's listen to Anticipation from 1971, Carly Simon on the Sound of Guru podcast. We can never know about the days to come But we think about them There's Carly Simon with Anticipation. You know, over the years there was a love-hate relationship, a back-and-forth thing with critics and her. She's not one of the most critically assailed people that I'm going to put on this episode or the next one, but another example, one of those people who kind of was a victim of their own success. That tends to happen to artists who become bigger than critics feel they deserve to be. And, you know, but she also, you know, aligned her star, although that wasn't her intention, I'm sure, when uh, with James Taylor when they married a couple years after that particular track I just played. And uh, they did some duets, some work together, uh, for the most part, in their during their marriage. It finally broke down in 1983, because he'd had a lot of uh, drug issues over the years, heroin per- particularly. 
Which is sort of unorthodox coming from a guy who seems so mellow and at peace with things and sort of like easygoing. And that was sort of the thing. It was joked that he was so mellow and so laid back that he was almost comatose. It was just like, God almighty, this guy, does he show any, you know, bit of personality? Which made the times that James Taylor, the artist I'm going to play a song from next, surprising when he actually would come out with a tune that had a little bit of, you know, oomph to it, a little attitude, a little edge, because he was seen as so inoffensive and, uh, you know, almost like to the point of, of mind-numbingly... Um, I guess uh, une uneventful music, kind of laid back, you know, quaint folk. Great acoustic guitar player, don't get me wrong, but not my certain cup of tea. He's seen as one of the greats of, uh, you know, contemporary music, and I don't know if I see that particularly talented, but there's there's got to be some kind of artistic edge. And don't worry, don't get me wrong, he did suffer for his art with the, you know, depression issues that he battled and the heroin addiction that plagued him for, you know, almost 20 years really of his life until he cleaned himself up in the 80s. And, uh, you know, the critics really had out of him in the, early, in the early 70s. They just hated the fact this guy was seen as the new vanguard. They said, are you kidding me? This guy, he, he doesn't inspire any kind of, you know, like excitement. And there's no creativity in that. And it's just sort of boring folk, you know. Here's a guy with his little guitar singing these inner songs of, you know, of uh, rumination on, on his life and things like that. And I guess they didn't see the depth of really what James Taylor was doing. I think he was a little, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan, but I think he was a little too harshly judged because, again, like Carly, his eventual wife, Carly Simon, there was this feeling that he wasn't deserving of the status he was handed. But here's a track from him that I particularly like of, of the handful of James Taylor songs that I'm a fan of. It's called Mexico, uh, and uh, it came out on an album called Gorilla, which sort of... Uh, highlighted the more soulful R&B side to him, although his cover of How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You just really lacks the spark of the original and even the Junior Walker cover. It's just sort of like he's too mellow for it to work, at least at least to my ears, I should say. <laughs> well, anyway, that's what it's. I'm here for, for with the show. I'm giving you my opinions and tastes. Anyway, uh, so this was a bit of a rebound commercially and critically for uh, James after his album Walking Man hadn't really done what the uh, previous few albums of his had done. But anyway, Mexico is a charming little track that shows what James Taylor was capable of when he, you know, added a sense of humor and some levity to his music and it wasn't all so introspective and a little bit, you know, um, kind of like off-putting. Yeah, but it's one of his funniest tracks. It's almost, you know, sort of like uh, gut-busting ones kind of compared to what he's usually done. Uh, next to Steamroller, of course, from Sweet Baby James, his big breaks in 1970. But anyway, let's get to it, huh? Here we go with a Mexico from James Taylor on the Sound of Group podcast of great songs from critically maligned artists. I'll have to go now America 
There you go, Mexico, with uh, if you're uh, accustomed to their sound. Uh, David Crosby and Graham Nash on the harmony vocals there. Of course, uh, one half of Crosby, Stills, Nash, or two-thirds of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and uh, one half of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. But anyway, there there's an example of James Taylor's sort of more lively side there. I mean, I guess a lot was dependent on his up-and-down drug problems in the 70s, which he eventually kicked in the 80s. And he was, you know, able to still maintain a great degree of uh, musical success and attention, despite his matinee looks, you know, being the sort of cowboy Jesus look at times in the 70s with the long hair and the mustache, um, you know, fading as his hair fell out by the mid-80s. He was pretty bald. And uh, he didn't really give a damn, you know, it was sort of like the old 60s mentality. He'd been through quite a bit in his life anyway. What did he care about putting on a toupee or whatever? But yeah, James Taylor was never really, he was always seen as sort of just this uh, um, fake, this kind of phony, successful hero that everyone wanted to anoint the next Dylan or the the thinking man's version of him, the thoughtful, introspective, um, you know, sort of like... uh, sensitive type. I think that's what really they, they keyed in on is the sensitivity to his music that really annoyed some rock critics. And a lot of the guys who grew up on some of the psychedelic stuff or the hippie stuff, they didn't like James Taylor. They thought he was a little too uh, bland. I mean, that's the one, one word there that just describes it. And oftentimes he was. But a talented bland artist, I'll put it that way. It's like Jackson Brown. I find them both to be kind of a little lacking something and they sort of leave you wanting a little something at times, but you can't deny their talent and their songwriting ability, I would say. So one of those artists that, you know, it's like Billy Joel. They, they hated on him, but maybe it was a little unfair. You know, unlike ABBA, I don't think the critics were always right when it comes to uh, their dislike of certain artists. And now we're going to finish up with another kind of folky group, America. It called that because they were three American guys who uh, formed in England when they got their group started out. They were in the U.K., and... Uh, they, you know, at times uh, had hits that sort of like lifted a bit from the sound of others, as, as far as I see it anyway. I mean, they had originally gotten big with, uh, they sounded a bit like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and sometimes Young on their big hit, The Ventura Highway. And they sounded a lot like Neil Young on A Horse With No Name that often people are confused and thought it was a Neil Young song. And their manager was even Elliot Roberts, who managed Neil Young. And I think in the great biography book about Neil Young, Shaky at one point, he said something like offhand remark to Roberts where he said, what the hell do you need uh, America for? Why do you need to manage them? You've got the original right here, you know, basically deriding their sound-alike song of this. And a few years later, they hit a number one on the charts yet again, like A Horse No Name had, with a song called Sister Golden Hair. Now tell me this song, if you are familiar with it, I can even give a link in the uh, article page on the blog page I have, actually, or even the Not the Public Broadcaster episode page. Tell me this doesn't sound like My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. This big hit, Sister Golden Hair, really does evoke that. I'm sure George wasn't pleased because, of course, he got sued for the likeness that his song had to He's So Fine. And then this one comes out, a sound-alike type tune. He was probably thinking, well, you know, maybe there's some proof here that I got ripped off. But whatever, he didn't, you know, nothing was pursued. It's just very similar. But, of course, you know, the public ate it up. Huge hit for America off their album Hearts in 1975. Let's get right into it and hurry this up, huh? Sister Golden Hair. From those mellow folk rockers and sometimes uh, not very well-liked by critics band, (laughs) America. Here it is on the Sound of Group Podcast. Tried to make it Sunday, but I got so damn depressed that I set my sights on Monday and I got myself undressed. I ain't ready for the altar, but I do agree there's times when 
Somebody, uh, Jerry Beckley from the group America, like I said, three um, kids of American soldiers that grew up in London but uh, got together with their Kusa guitars and set out and conquered the pop world for a while anyway. And that album was actually produced by uh, George Martin. They were huge Beatles guys, and there he did. You know, they got him in there to produce Hearts. So good for them, I guess, getting their influences together to, uh, you know, take control. And, of course, that number one hit arrived from it. So maybe it's no surprise it sounds a bit like a George Harrison track, huh, with the slide guitar intro and everything bit like My Sweet Lord, as I've said. Uh, and a lot of people have interpreted, what is Sister Golden Hair about? Like, he says, Sister Golden Hair surprise. Is it because a carpet doesn't match the drapes? Is she a fake blonde? What is it? Anyway, this has gone on a bit long, and uh, we're going to have another themed episode of this particular one coming up next, and I'm just going to sort of speed this whole up and uh, bid you adieu and uh, look forward to the next one. So, until then, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>